Let's stand together now for the reading of God's Word. Continuing forward in the book of Acts, still in chapter 17, focusing on verses 13 through 15 this Lord's Day. The title of the sermon is More Trouble from Thessalonica. I'll read from verse 1 through to verse 21. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen, amen. amen. Please be seated. 
So today we'll see more trouble coming from these misled and evil speaking and evil acting Jews from Thessalonica. We'll see their meddling and their snooping. We'll see the way the brethren in Berea respond to this with wisdom and with urgency. We'll see how the gospel work wisely continues in Berea. We'll see more evidence that this strategy is not based on fear. And uh, consider this for our own lives as well. We'll see the love of the Bereans acting to accompany Paul and help him, to guide him uh, to Athens. And we'll see them even so much as taking a message back with them. And it attests to their faith and their love for the ministers of God. And along the way and at the end, some questions to examine ourselves. You know how it is. It's easy to cast yourself in the role of the good guy. Well, may that be true of us, but also we know in our old man that we make the Thessalonican Jews look like Girl Scouts. So may we grow as a result of this. We're going to consider the devotion and persistence of the wicked. The devotion and the persistence of the wicked is set before us here today. And we'll contrast this with the loving perseverance of God's people. In addition, we'll consider the comparative wisdom of the two battling kingdoms, one based on fear and leveraging it, and the other based on love and service to God. These are the kingdoms of darkness and light encountering one another then as they continue to even in this day. By God's grace, we will examine the state of our own hearts before Christ and find out what yoke, by God's grace, what yoke is upon your shoulders today. Are we devoted like Paul? Are we compelled? Are we controlled by the love of Christ? Have we taken His yoke upon us and happily stayed there? Or are we more like the Jews of Thessalonica, controlled by selfishness in our devotion? You know, you might be sitting here today demonstrating great religious devotion, but from a heart like these Thessalonican Jews, a heart of fear and a desire to control and maintain your own will, not really submitted to God's will. This will often show up as a lukewarmness. Um, most Christians are not just going to openly say, I yoke myself to my own will. But what will happen is there'll be a, a lukewarmness that develops kind of sitting on the outside, looking in at the battle, unaware that such a posture actually makes us friends with God's enemies. And so, where are you in regards to accepting and submitting to God's will in your life, no matter what may occur? And another way of phrasing the question is, have you taken His yoke upon you? And if so, do you try to squirm out from time to time? So let's look at these, and you'll see there in your sermon notes the map, which I hope is helpful to you as we see the travels of Paul and his team. They've been in Macedonia. Uh, they're on their way to Achaia, or Achaia at this point in the story. 
And you'll see today, they're going to go from, Thessal- from Berea. You're going to see him leaving Berea and going down the coast there. You see all the way to Athens. And also, we'll be reminded of the distance there between Thessalonica and Berea, showing the devotion of the enemies of God. So the first portion shows us the snooping and the meddling Jews of Thessalonica. Snooping and meddling is a part of the devil's work. And it can be a part of your soul as well. It will be instructive if you see snooping and meddling in your own life to see how you are similar to these Jews from Thessalonica. Verse 13 says, When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So I want us to, first of all, again, we we looked at this last week, but it's worth noting again because the contrast is before our eyes. Note Paul's perseverance to continue preaching the word of God to the Jews despite his prior suffering and persecutions at their hands. We remembered these things together last week, which were very severe, included even being left for dead. Perhaps he was dead when he had been stoned before, I think it was in Lystra. So what is it that keeps Paul moving? We looked at this in an earlier sermon, and it it keeps him moving. It is the only force that keeps going forward. And it is, brothers and sisters, the love of Christ within Paul which compels him forward. His gratitude to his Savior, his knowledge and devotion to his glory and his majesty and his kingdom. We've read this scripture before. We'll look at it again and may this be true for us. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is the love of Christ that we have unto Christ in gratitude. But it is also the love of Christ, his love, what he loves placed within us so that we love what he loves. Our affections are his given to us. And we then become devoted to being his hands and his feet and his mouthpieces, his ambassadors in the earth. And we see here kind of what we've talked about in the Heidelberg. We don't belong to ourselves. Our only comfort in life and death is that we belong in body and soul to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This inward reality controls Paul as he moves through his ministry. Now, we see, however, also great devotion from the enemies of God. The devil hasn't hung up his cleats, right? He's still sharpening them daily. And we will see this battle going on until the end of time. The devil will never stop, nor will the sinful old man ever give in to resisting God. We can't negotiate with our flesh any more than we can negotiate with the devil. So it is worth noting the persistence and the diligence of evil. It's one of the main points in this text. For example, recall it's a 45-mile journey between Thessalonica and Berea. Walking on that road, probably a two- or three-day journey, maybe 
maybe one day if you had a, a horse, you could get there. So they have intelligence about what's going on there in Berea. How did they receive that information? What is motivating them? It is their love for their own system. This creates within them their hatred for Paul's gospel. Their hatred for the message that Jesus is the Christ foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. And we need to take note of the zeal of these Jews from Thessalonica. They have sold themselves out to stopping Paul's mission. And it, I think, is an example to us of how so often the forces of darkness are far more committed than the people of God to doing the will of darkness. Think about this, this distance they had to travel, this proximity challenge that the enemies of God faced. Did they just throw up their hands and say, oh, it's too far? Oh, throw up their hands and say, oh, it's somebody else's responsibility? Think of the inconveniences associated with their intelligence gathering, the cost that they had to spend, the difficulty that it would have been for them to acquire this information. None of this stopped these Jews from expressing the love for their religion and their way of life. Now, examine yourself. When you face these types of practical inconveniences, how do you face them? Are you less committed to the ways of God than his enemies are to destroying the gospel? Next, what was it the Jews of Thessalonica actually hated? It appears as though there was a trigger moment for them that they were waiting for, that they were watching for, that at that point they were going to re-engage again. What was it? Well, it was when Paul preached the Word of God. When Paul preached the Word of God, this was their trigger point to journey to Berea and to intrude. So at this point they go from snooping to meddling. At this point, they are on their way, and they're going to get there, and they're going to implement the exact same plan that we have seen them implement over and over again. The methods of devilish destruction stay the same. They haven't changed. In some eras, we might call it Thessalonicanism, or apostate Judaism, or Marxism, or communism. There's all kinds of systems under which these devilish goals and methods have been carried out. But they love their system of religion. They are fully committed to it. And it gives birth to this hatred for the Word of God and their unending devotion to bringing it to an end. <clears throat> Commentary says, the Jews at Thessalonica were the mischief makers at Berea. They had noticed that the Word of God was preached at Berea for envy and jealousy bring quick intelligence. Envy and jealousy bring quick intelligence. And likewise, that the Jews there were not so inveterately set against it as they were. <clears throat> so there was likely some knowledge. I mean, how did they even know where they went? 
because they left in the middle of the night and they, they left quickly. So these Jews had to have sent out very likely like aircraft carriers in World War II would send out their scout planes in every direction because they didn't know which, right? They had to have sent out their snooping scouts to multiple different cities along the way. They knew enough of Paul's method that he would have been looking for a synagogue. So they find him. Now then they probably realize, you know, those Bereans are pretty gullible. You know, they're, they're, not, as, you know, they're not as strong as we are. We're going to have to watch out for them. So you just see this kind of snooping and meddling and really a disrespect for the Jews in Berea to be able to handle their own business. Again, the method is the same there as what happened at Thessalonica. They stir up the crowds against Paul and his message. And what was the message? What was the preaching of the Word of God? It was that the foretold Messiah of the Old Testament had to suffer and die and be raised from the dead and that that foretold Messiah is none other than Jesus Christ of, of Nazareth. And that to be a true believer is to put your faith in this Messiah as the only Lamb of God. And that all the entire Old Testament system of sacrificial deliverance from sin is culminated and fulfilled completely in this Messiah. Who was raised from the dead and now reigns over all things. They were called to believe this, and it would certainly bring an end to their system. So, they're willing to use any means necessary to stop Paul. And this should remind us of the forces of darkness arrayed against the people of God in today's world. And remind us of the depths of darkness and the lengths to which the devil and the kingdom of darkness are willing to go in order to stamp out God's people. We are not engaging in conspiracy-mindedness other than biblical conspiracy-mindedness when we understand this reality. These Jews are vicious. They're ferocious. Their blind devotion to their own religious system gives birth to this irrationality Remember, they refused to be persuaded. They turned off their logical mind and immediately jump into ad hominem and ultimately using politics and the crowds to attack the bodies of those who bring a message they cannot defeat. So they have this ferocious tenacity to, to destroy the gospel message. And at this point, if you think about it, they reveal themselves to be more like animals than like humans. They are not thinking, they are not using reason, and they've turned over their path to destruction. And it is a blind, brutish approach. Now, I want us to see that the recalcitrant hatred leading to persistent spying and repetitive attacks against Paul and his team shows us the same kinds of things that are occurring since and also today. Many of us probably have our phones turned on right now. And the spying that is taking place in today's world is unmatched throughout the history of mankind. The immediacy, the, the ability for this to take place. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium had done the same thing. We already saw it in the first missionary journey there in the southern Galatian churches. When they come to Lystra, 
And they stir up the multitudes against Paul, and they stone him either to death or nearly to death. And it, it maybe Paul learned a lesson from that. Maybe he realized he stuck around there too long, longer than he needed to. And so his, his mission is to plant churches all throughout the world. So he needs a specific message from God in order to stay someplace for a long time, like we'll see that he did at Corinth. I believe he was there for a year and a half because of a message from God. So when he leaves quickly to go elsewhere, it's a part of his plan already. He just discovers the timing when the Jews grab their stones or their rods or whatever their neck's going to try to kill him with. And of course, it was the rod of the Romans. In one sense, their persistence could be seen as admirable if we didn't know they were motivated by sin. I think we see this same kind of thing today in the expression of so many cultural devotions that we have in today's world. What are the things that you see people devoted to that is always on their mind, that they're always thinking of, they're always spending time on, that really don't connect with God's kingdom and doing His will? Think of those things, whatever it might be, whether it's college football in the South or whether it's some other sport or, or who knows what it might be some cultural devotion, and ask yourself, are those individuals more devoted to their trivialities than I am to the kingdom of God? <clears throat> do they think and meditate upon these things that are their idols more than I do upon God himself and his glory? And then, of course, we'll come to our own souls and ask ourselves, where are my loves? What do I think about? <clears throat> Commentary says, about these Jews, they came thither also to turn the world upside down there. So it wasn't the Christians who turned the world upside down to mess it up. Of course, Christ turns the world upside down because it was already upside down. But it is these wicked lovers, lovers of wickedness, who are turning the world upside down. They stirred up the people and incensed them against the preachers of the gospel. And if they had such a commission from the prince of darkness to go, as if they had such a commission from the prince of darkness to go from place to place to, to oppose the gospel, as the apostles had to go from place to place to preach it. Thus we read before that the Jews of Antioch and Iconium came to Lystra on purpose to incense the people against the apostles. See how restless Satan's agents are in their opposition to the gospel of Christ and the salvation of the souls of men. This is an instance of the enmity that is in the serpent's seed against the seed of the woman. And we must not think it strange if persecutors at home extend their rage to stir up persecution abroad. As we consider this, it is... Again, worth remembering, calling to mind the persevering love of Christ within Paul and his team, compelling them to continue to preach the Word of God, considering that not only their mission, but their method continues to be grace and working within God's means and not the arms that arm of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, this is another example of the battle of the ages. And of course, the question for each of us of every age, even little children out there wondering when the pastor will be finished. And old children also wondering the same thing. 
Are you in this battle? Where are you? The kingdom of darkness maintains its persistent hatred for God and His gospel and His church, always stirring itself up unto mischief. Mount Doom ever boils forth. Seeking to use humans and their institutions to harm and threaten God's people in addition to their spiritual attacks to stop and to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stealing, killing, and destroying. The goal and the methods of darkness shall persist until Jesus Christ returns and puts a final end to this volcano of hell. On the other hand, the Lord Jesus Christ, alive at God's right hand, with His Holy Father, continually pours out the Holy Spirit of God upon this world. And no flaming lava can ever withstand this water from Zion poured out upon the soul, poured out upon the world. This is unto salvation, and it's continual, and it's irresistible, and it's for the salvation of His people, and for the continual growth of His kingdom. And it brings forth His redemptive judgment and destruction upon all of His enemies. So where are you? Into which kingdom have you been placed? Do you remain within the kingdom of darkness as an unbeliever, not trusting in Christ? Or have you been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by trusting in Christ? Remembering that even as you might say, I am a believer in Christ, I have been brought into the kingdom of light, that you have an ongoing choice to make each day. There is no neutrality. Each person is either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God, and also each person is either working for Christ and His glory or working for darkness. Matthew 12, verse 30, Jesus makes this perfectly clear. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. And it is no, worth noting there that he, he's not necessarily referencing someone who has consciously set themselves against him. Right? This is just simply someone who's not acting in accordance with being with him. Instead of gathering, these folks scatter. And so it's clear that even believers can be a part of the problem. Joshua put this same choice before the nation of Israel after the Lord had delivered their enemies into their hands and brought them into the promised land. They had possessed their lands, the lands of their enemies, their cities, their homes, and their vineyards had all been given to them. Cities they did not build, homes they did not design or construct, vineyards they did not plan or manage, herds that were there for them, that were given to them by God. Joshua says, now therefore fear the Lord. Hear those words. Fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 15 says, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. That should be a striking phrase given what God has just accomplished for them. What is Joshua seeing in the people that even though God has done so much for them, they are still clinging to these old gods, thinking somehow that these old ways would be better than fearing the Lord. What things are there in our lives, in spite of what God has done for you, in your salvation, in your family, in your life, in your health, in your work, in His blessings to you, in the considerations of your family history and the history of our nation, of what He has done for us. And yet, do we still, like these who go before us, consider it evil to serve the Lord? And that evil wouldn't necessarily mean unrighteous, but rather just unsafe. Brothers and sisters, it is my grave concern as your pastor that many of us have not been through this deliverance like we need to go through to be fully delivered from this fear and not in any way therefore to thus find it evil to just follow the Lord and be at peace in His will. We have to beware of being lukewarm. This kind of fence sitting, this straddling is what happens when fear is still in place. And Jesus says, uh, we read in the book of Revelation, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. So this is the Lord Jesus in his revelation to John. These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You see, choosing the quiet, neutral spot may seem acceptable and wise. Taking the path of least resistance that exposes you to the least hazard. It may seem wise. Setting yourself on the path motivated by avoiding pain is neither safe nor wise. And it is not based on feet planted on Mount Zion, but rather it is based on feet planted elsewhere. Now, the path of wisdom may utilize silence in order to avoid unnecessary conflict. Clever as serpents. But don't confuse this with embracing neutrality being acceptable to God in order to make yourself go along the safest path according to your own terribly limited view of what is actually safe. This is dangerous, ultimately. Isn't that ironic? In our efforts to keep ourselves safe, we bring upon ourselves the greatest danger. So when we take on the yoke of Christ and lay off the yoke of our own pragmatic calculations, brothers and sisters, we are set free. And we are brought into this place of tranquility and peace that certainly was guiding Paul and Silas and Timothy as they were going through these times. 
The church at Berea had clearly embraced this. They continued to associate with Paul and his team. Verse 14 tells us, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. And we'll see they sent brethren with them. So this work of the church at Berea is an evidence of their faith, uh, that they love the Lord. Now, what would fear have done? Fear probably would have taken steps to disassociate from Paul and his team. Right? Just, Just go away, please. Okay, you've brought trouble upon us. Uh, we don't want this trouble uh, we, for, for us or our families or our children. Uh, we realize now what has happened. Would you just please go away? But instead of this flight from the battle, the Bereans, in faith, understanding the situation, continue in the battle. They, they, they continue ahead in the battle. And it's the brethren that send them away. Not because they don't love him and appreciate him, but precisely because they love him and appreciate him and they know it's time for him to go somewhere else and maybe, maybe without being beaten by rods or nearly killed by stones beforehand. And to the sea, we're told, this distance appears like the Bereans had a, a, a pretty high degree of wisdom about who knows what, the, the level of commitment of the, the Jews from Thessalonica. That, you know, they became aware of this snooping, probably, widespread snooping that they were doing. So they, they want to accomplish a more permanent break from these Thessalonian persecutions and to continue the work of the gospel elsewhere with such, without such devoted hatred against them. So like earlier responses, we've discussed this, this is not the flight of fear. This is following God's providential timing, knowing it's time to leave Berea and to go somewhere else. Now, of course, if you're honest and you look at your own heart, you can see that sometimes... Paths of fear are going to look like paths of faith, and you're really only you're the only one that's going to know why you're doing what you're doing. But it will come to you in a very clear, miraculous internal sense of peace that will utterly surpass understanding for you. You will experience this. Commentary says, this occasion Paul's removal to Athens by seeking to extinguish this divine fire which Christ had already kindled, they did but spread it the further and the faster. So once we take on the yoke of Christ, likely yoked there with him, if you will, this yoke that he wore, and when we put it on, he's wearing it with us. But he's also the one with the reins in his hand guiding us. And I think it would probably be best to have our eyes poked out and just be blind oxen letting the master lead us or so blinded by our fixation upon him that we are just glad to go where he goes. So we also see here this godly decisiveness on display from the Bereans. There's no time for debate and delay. The word is immediately. There are times, brothers and sisters, We must act quickly and decisively, and it is not necessarily the same thing as being hasty. The principles were in place ahead of time, and when the criteria were met, they knew it was time for them to go. So they clearly had thought ahead. They were aware of the coming of the persecuting Jews from Thessalonica, and that they were busy and irritating the people against Paul, and fearing what it would come to, they lost no time, but immediately sent Paul away against whom they were most prejudiced and enraged, hoping that this would pacify them. And we'll see as we consider that 
Timothy and Silas stay behind, that their strategy here was to deflect the majority of the rage upon Paul. And who knows, maybe they may have left some little crumbs behind for the snoopers uh, and, and didn't tell them that Paul and that, that Silas and Timothy had been left behind. Uh, you know, we, we have to deploy wisdom in dealing with the spies of the devil. So then we see this continuation of the gospel at Berea. And again, we see this measured response of dealing with the threat in a way that continues to advance the kingdom of God. We probably wouldn't give any thought if all three of them had left together. But now we bring this before our view and we say, let's consider the wisdom here. Because both Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. So the initial, what we see here is the initial gospel work in Berea needs some finishing. Okay? And so they all agree for Silas and Timothy to stay there and to continue the church planting effort. So as we're engaged in this daily battle with evil, what we see here next is the wisdom of this grappling and how to go through these threats in a way that allow us to best minister in the places where God has called us to do so. I want us to consider Paul's love for the kingdom of God here. See how he hazards his departure, this departure without his companions. See his devotion to Berea. He wants, he senses this place needs more gospel work before the, he feel comfortable with the church planting, the initial church planting efforts being complete. So what does Paul do? You see his kingdom, it's not my will be done, it's thy will be done. Like Jesus said, nevertheless, thy will be done. His own comfort and fellowship needs are submitted to the needs of the Berean church. See Paul's priorities expressed here. And, and examine your own priorities. Do our priorities need a reshuffling? Paul prioritized the good of the church above his own comfort and needs. Also want us to note that this required some risk on his part because he hadn't been at Berea for a long time. He did not know these brethren very well. So he was expressing his faith in Christ and his love for God's church. I also want us to see that Paul's discipleship of Silas and Timothy had progressed. And of course, this is, this is how discipleship works. They were becoming like Paul, enough so that he felt comfortable to leave them Gospel discipleship eventually requires disciples standing and serving on their own without their mentor's presence. This is a very important principle of life, brothers and sisters. You can ask yourself questions such as, what is the future of my family? What have I passed on to my children? You can ask yourself, what is the future of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church? It is bleak if we look only at what we have done and accomplished so far in terms of discipleship for future generations. Would you agree with that assessment of our current state and deficiency? But of course, we rejoice in our weaknesses and our insults and our persecutions and our difficulties, knowing that these things come to us from God so we can be content even in these difficulties. But it is worth noting 
How can we grow up in discipling others? Being discipled and discipling others. Commentary says they retained Silas and Timothy there who, now that Paul had broken the ice, might be sufficient to carry on the work without exposing Paul. So in this we see so much unspoken happening in the time that has passed since Timothy and Silas joined with Paul. Where did Silas come from? Where did he originate from? Do you remember? Anyone remember? Jerusalem. Remember? The Jerusalem council. And he came down with them and he stuck around. And now here he is planting churches in Achaia. And Timothy, we know he came from the Lystra Derby region during the first missionary journey. Do you think Paul had any direct hand in Silas coming from Jerusalem? Maybe. But God just provided his need. Do you think Paul expected to show up and find God's work in Timothy? Just plopped right into his lap? Probably not. So we need to trust the Lord for him to supply our needs here and for his church elsewhere. So what happens next? Well, the Brian servants take Paul to Athens. The text says, so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And this idea of conducted means that these Berean brothers took charge of Paul and that Paul submitted himself both to the plan and the men who would guide him to Athens. It's as if perhaps they left so quickly that no firm plan of travel, travel had yet been made and perhaps even no firm plan of destination had yet been made. So I want us again to note Paul's trust towards these new brethren as he submits himself to the will of God in this fast-moving situation. Sometimes following God requires us to allow ourselves to pass through situations that have great amounts of uncertainty. Okay, the Lord will take us into spots where we don't have the level of trust that we'd like to have to move through that situation. Sometimes He will take us into situations where we have to trust Him a lot more than we'd like to. Of course, what does that reveal to us? that we need to trust him like that at all times anyways. Next, note the extensive devotion of these new brethren. These are new believers in Christ. They leave behind their families and their security for this journey, associating themselves with Paul at this close level, and who take on all the risk of being closely associated with him. They didn't know whether they were going to escape the eyes of these hateful Jews. They knew they could be caught. Their families being left without them. Think about the faith that they had. The risk that they were willing to take for the kingdom. Commentary says, so long, so long Paul stayed at Berea and such success he had there that there were brethren there and sensible active men too which appeared by the care they took of Paul. What a great blessing that God gave to Paul there at Berea. Not only the reception of the gospel, but the fruit of that faith at this time, the love that he received. We're going to talk more about Athens next week, but now about Athens, we hear Matthew Henry say these words. The Spirit of God influencing Paul's spirit directed him to that famous city, famous of old for its power and dominion, when the Athenian commonwealth coped with the Spartan, famous afterwards for, lear for learning, it was the rendezvous of scholars. 
Those who wanted learning went thither to show it. It was a great university, much resorted to from all parts, and therefore for the better diffusing of gospel light, Paul is sent there, and is not ashamed nor afraid to show his face among the philosophers there, and there to preach Christ crucified, though he knew it would be as much foolishness to the Greeks as it was to the Jews a stumbling block. So Athens is this great place of learning where all the scholars went, always wanting to hear something new. And Paul saw an opportunity there. The Berean servants don't stop. They remain devoted to Paul and to his team. This love they have is not limited to Paul, but to the whole team, because receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So you can see they didn't stick around there to refresh themselves after this long journey. They turned right around and resumed the journey home immediately because they had been told, commanded by Paul, get Silas and Timothy and bring them to me with all speed. They brought him and then went on another mission, delivering this important message to Silas and Timothy straight away. Probably, we don't know, but probably helping Silas and Timothy quickly come to Paul as commanded. Commentary says he ordered Silas and Timothy to come to him to Athens when he found there was a prospect of doing good there or and or because there being none there that he knew he was solitary and melancholy without them and he knew that he needed their encouragement to continue the gospel mission. Now we see later that Silas and Timothy don't meet back up with Paul until he gets to Corinth. So it appears they did not participate with Paul's ministry at Athens. So in this course of events there at Berea, when the bad, self-devoted Jews of Thessalonica come to Berea, and the response of Paul and the church there, we see a yoking in two, two examples. I want to read to us uh, once again, from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. I'll ask you to turn there with me in your pew Bibles. I think it would be important for us to read these words together as I end the sermon today. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. <clears throat> Starts on page 1508. Let's read it together, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, 
and my burden is light. So Jesus is standing up there before the Jews, presenting himself to them as their Messiah, calling them into salvation, which he equates with knowing God, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. This revelation of God to our souls, Jesus lays Himself out there for the Jews to see. He is the promised Messiah. And this message is not, this promise, this commandment is not for all. Not here anyways. It says, all you who labor and are heavy laden. So if you're here today with without a laden soul and not knowing the labor of this life, being fully at peace in your soul and in your life, then you don't need to hear what Jesus has to say. But I think if uh, you've walked a bit in this life, you've known being heavy laden. You've known labor and a soul that is weighed down and the need for rest. This rest is what Paul and his team display to us time and time again. No hint of grumbling or complaining about these hardships that God brought into their lives. They were fully submitted to God's will, even to the extent of giving up their own lives, if need be. Acknowledging that we are only stewards in this life. Nothing that you have is your own. This stewardship mentality is the taking on of the yoke of Jesus Christ. And it is the transferring of all the burdensome weight of believing that you own your own life. Believing that you own your own family. Believing that you have some plan that is going to definitely occur. Clinging on to what you want. Wanting what you want. And not releasing it. So many will come and they will find this rest, that salvation. Many of you, most of you, I think, probably have known this salvation, this taking on of the yoke of Jesus, this rest in the forgiveness of sin and the devotion to his ways, the mortification of the flesh and the hatred of the old and the putting on of the new. But you fight against it, don't you? We want to take the yoke off sometimes because we have this idea of what it was going to be like to wear it. And these tests of faith come often, but they especially come early in the life of faith. We see this with Abraham. We see it with others. We see it in the Bereans, this early test. We quickly discover that taking Christ's yoke often means the total destruction of our own little fantasy worlds that we've concocted in our minds these wish dreams that we need to be quickly disillusioned of, which is good for us. When we release these things into the Lord's hands, we can say, what's the worst thing they can do? Kill us? Amen. And this is where the rest comes. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Stay in his will, Release your own little plans to him over and over again. Not my will, but thy will be done, Father. It brings a whole new meaning to praying the Lord's Prayer. 
as you pray that portion of the Lord's Prayer. It's not just asking for His kingdom to come and to invade this earth, but for you yourself to be content with whatever He does. This means a holy detachment from all the plans and goals that you have in your life. Okay, whatever it may be. Okay, maybe you imagine some future state of your, your marriage relationship. Or maybe you, maybe you imagine uh, pregnancy and children. Uh, maybe you imagine your, your children serving God in a certain way. Maybe you imagine your business or your finances. Who knows what you have in your mind? Not my will, but your will be done, O oh God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we're learning from Him. We're in this yoke with Him. You see, Paul, he's not trying to give instructions to God. He's blinded by his view of Christ. And wherever Christ leads him, he goes there. This is learning from Jesus. Learning from Jesus means when he's guiding you, you're not fighting against it. You're not, you're not kicking against it. You don't have that internal striving and struggling. You're not urging at the reins, trying to go faster than he goes. You're not digging in your heels, refusing to move when he's moving you. You're not trying to go right when he's going left or left when he's going right. And over time, after you've learned from him long enough, you realize, hey, I bet he wants me to go this way. And about the time you start to go that way, you realize he's already guiding you there. And he was as you even thought it. Walking in the Spirit. Living in the moment with the Lord God as he directs you and guides you. This is a light burden. This is an easy burden that we take on ourselves. And this is what Paul and his team demonstrate to us. And this really is where peace is. Because when we are yoked up with the one, the only one who is gentle and lowly in heart, we have there and only there rest for our souls. So to the extent that you have turmoil in your soul, probably, especially if it's persistent, there's a straddling of two worlds going on in your life. And it's become so familiar for you that you think it's normal. And you hear the command of God, do not fret, it leads only to evil. And you think, what, what does that mean? Of course anyone's going to worry. Not so. Not so. Will we suffer? Yes. Will we grieve? Yes. Do we need to fret or be anxious? Not at all. So may God deliver us into this kingdom of peace where our Prince of Peace is yoked up with us and he guides us and he takes us in his path no matter what external forces we face and as we bump into the persistence of the devil, let us not look to our own persistence. But let us look to the persevering and invincible power of the one who has been raised from the dead, who sits now at God's right hand, and who, through the power of his invincible life, pours out his Holy Spirit upon us and shall keep us to the end and shall make us more than conquerors every step of the way. There's a temptation to focus on yourself with messages like this. Oh, I just need to yoke up no, we need to receive the power of the one who ultimately has yoked us to himself. And he will lead us. and We can rest in him. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father,
Lord, first we want to thank You for the persistence of the devil and the continued wickedness of the kingdom of darkness and how You set these, Your servants, upon Your leash for the good of Your kingdom and Your people. Lord, that You have established them here in the earth for a time to demonstrate to us the greater love of Christ and the conquering power of love and mercy against the forces of evil, the harshness and the threats associated with fear. Bless us in this day, we ask, O oh God, to be like Paul and Silas and Timothy and these Berean brethren who look to you and trust in you, taking your yoke upon them, that we would be like that, Lord, and that we would uh, learn from you and that we would find rest for our souls. Oh, we praise you, Father. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are gentle and lowly in heart. May we now, for the remainder of this worship and all of our lives, rest in the joy of your presence and your power as you lead us, your people, on in this path of glory and victory that you have foreordained and that none can ever come against or thwart in any way. In Jesus' name. Amen.